Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from the Recounting Acast, where every week we talk about the biggest sports stories and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm LZ Granderson. That's my boy, Will Leach. That is indeed LZ, and we have a very full slate today, starting with our top stories of the week. First, we're going to focus on college football in the wake of two seismic coaching changes that happened this week. Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma for USC, and Notre Dame's Brian Kelly took off for LSU with both receiving highly lucrative contracts. Now, in the wake of last summer's supposed college sports reform, is college football more of a Wild West than ever? Which Wild West do you prefer, Will Smith's or Big Daddy Kane's? Not Will Smith's. We also want to discuss corrosive fan behavior since the number of bad incidents directed towards athletes and coaches like the one that just happened to LeBron James in Indiana has seemingly increased since crowds returned to games after, yep, the pandemic shutdown. Have fans really become more entitled and brazen or are players and coaches more willing to confront rude behavior than ever before? I've always been a brazen and entitled fan. I want to be brazen just once. We're also going to focus on the pandemic, that old chestnut and the effect it has had on the sports world, or lack thereof. If it turns out the recently discovered coronavirus variant Omicron turns out to be a major problem, will sports shut down like it did in March 2020 when the pandemic first took hold? Don't think so, brother. Not Don't think so. (laughs) We've also got a great This Week in Sports History segment. 19 years ago this week, on November 28, 2002, 39-year-old NBA legend Michael Jordan, then of the Washington Wizards, announced that he would retire from basketball for the third and final time. In his two years with the Wizards, the team went only 37-45 and 45 each season and failed to make the playoffs. The truth is, when Michael didn't play with Scottie Pippen, his teams never finished over 500. Don't tell Jordan that! Definitely tell Pippen that. He has many thoughts. <laughs> Should we still really be considering him the greatest player of all time, LZ? Oh, no. We're not doing LeBron versus Jordan I debates. Know, I'm sorry. I can't resist. It's like a tick. <laughs> I can't stop. And we'll finish off the show with our games of the week and a new segment, Will's and LZ's Blunders of the Week. But first, Will, I want to know one thing, my man. What is your sports mood right now? I feel so much like when I was cramming for a test in college. I always skipped class. I covered the sports teams and always asked the athletes to give me their notes. And they were always very nice because they actually had to go to class. I didn't. So I feel I would always cram the night before the test. It feels a little bit like that with baseball right now in that every single deal is happening right up to this artificial deadline. It's not actually an artificial deadline. It's a real deadline because the sport is shutting down. Sport is shutting down not long after people are listening to this podcast. On Wednesday night, the sport will freeze for who knows how long. So because of that, all of these crazy, crazy deals are happening. I'm having a blast. I love it. I feel like a a whole off season is happening in like two days. I don't understand why everyone wants to go to Arlington so badly. I know there's a lot of money, but... It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but it's also Arlington. No offense to people in Arlington. Sounds offensive to me. But you should move. Yeah, you should move to somewhere else (laughs) other than Arlington. I love when people do that. You trash a city, then you go, no offense to the people living there. Yeah, but you should move. You (laughs) should go somewhere else that's better. (laughs) But certainly, it has been wild to see everyone try to rush every deal they can before the spigot gets turned off. Well, for me, my friend, I don't have a word. I have a sound. Oh, no. It's the end of an era. I think that was off enough that we do not have to pay royalties. (laughs) It's the end of an era, man. (laughs) Seager's gone. Yeah. Seager has left my beloved Dodgers, but it's not just about that. There's an aspect to this Dodgers run 
that I really gravitated toward that I can't help but notice is being dismantled by the economics of baseball. And this really started last year with the departure of Kiki. When Kiki Hernandez left the Dodgers for the Boston Red Sox, it made financial sense. It even made baseball sense. But it just was heartbreaking because those of us who are Dodgers fans know what he really meant to that team outside of the stats, outside of the box seat, right? Like we got him. And Seager is another one of those guys, another one of those aspects, those personalities that you gravitated toward. And now CT3, Chris Taylor may leave. And it feels as if, yes, we're going to still win. Yes, we're perfectly fine. Yes, we're probably still going to be favorites to win the World Series next season, whenever that season starts. Assuming there will be a season <laughs> if the Omicron or the labor union or the Meteors doesn't come first. But it won't be the team that we've gotten to know during this great run because the personalities that we're connected to, they're going to be elsewhere. I'm empathetic to the Dodgers for losing Corey Seager because he came up in the system. He's been with them forever. It's always said when you lose someone, you'll have to forgive me for perhaps being a little wary of hearing a Dodger fan talk about the economic realities of the game somehow hurting his team. <laughs> so I didn't say it hurt the team. I wasn't whining and complaining about the economics hurting the team. The I vibe. just said, right. we're still going to be fine. Yeah, I'm just saying in terms of the sort of personalities that you latch onto as you're rooting for your team, right. they're changing. And with that, the relationship that I have with the team changes too. I understand that. I'm sure uh, you can talk to Red Sox fans about how Mookie Betts left their team and how it affected not. them emotionally. I'd rather not. That's another. I don't really care uh, about those people. Yeah, I actually, to be honest, I don't either. You should move <laughs> out of Boston. Go somewhere else. No offense. No offense, but where you live is terrible and you should move. <laughs> It's, it's like going up to a guy and going, your wife's ugly. You should get a divorce. Yeah. No, offense. no offense. No offense. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, you are also repulsive. And you've been, so I suppose neither of you may have any choice. There you go. No offense. Oh, not taken. <laughs> All right, LZ, moving on. I, I think it would not be fitting for me to recognize uh, the University of Oklahoma, uh, the impact that it had on me, the people there. Uh, this was obviously, I told the team earlier, uh, toughest decision of my life uh, to come here. And, and it's, uh, those people there were tremendous to me. And uh, so, thank you. That was former Oklahoma head football coach Lincoln Riley talking about his decision to leave the school to become the head coach at the University of Southern California. In the past week, there have been two huge coaching changes in college football. Besides Riley, Notre Dame's head coach Brian Kelly is moving on to take over the reins at LSU. Although contract details remain unconfirmed, it's clear that both men are receiving highly lucrative deals that are shaking the foundation of the sport as they become its two highest paid coaches. LZ, my question for you is this. In the wake of last summer's supposed college sports reform, where it was all supposed to change and things were supposed to be different and players were going to get more, it feels like the sport is more of a Wild West than ever, right? Well, I will say this. Notre Dame used to be the school that college coaches tried to get to. <laughs> and when that school becomes a stepping stone to another school... Yes, Will. Yeah. It's more wild, wild west than ever. <laughs> no one in the history of the football program has ever left the University of Notre Dame to go coach somewhere else. 
not willingly. Particularly when get they're, fired. They're, they're about to. They got a chance to make the playoff. Like, they're eleven they're, and one. <laughs> they're eleven and one. And old dudes crept out in the still of the night. Yes, it is in a complete shock. Shock, even more than Lincoln Riley, in my opinion, because, yeah, he's been very successful, but I could see why someone like him at this point in his life would want to go to L.A. and try USC. That makes sense to me. Particularly when it's hard to get in the playoff, right? It's going to be easier to get in the playoff. Easy to get in the playoffs. They're about to go to the SEC. Lifestyle, depending upon what you want out of life. Norman, Oklahoma, Southern California. No offense to Norman, Oklahoma. Actually, all the offense thing. You should, <laughs> Leave. Don't even go try somewhere pretend. else. You shouldn't even try to pretend as if we're not meaning to offend you. Yes, yes, we are meaning to offend you when we say that. It, it's the Notre Dame thing for me. That's the one. I actually can't think of anything even close to this. Maybe you get a film script from Steven Spielberg and you go, nah, I'm going to go over here and work with this nobody. But LSU is not a nobody. It's just yeah. even Steven Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. I can't even wrap my head around what a seismic shift this is in terms of how we think about college football and what it has meant in sports as a whole. If Notre Dame becomes just one of the schools as opposed to Notre Dame, then no one is safe, right? No school should feel as if it's the place to be. <laughs> I mean, certainly not private Catholic institutions in the Midwest. <laughs> and I think this speaks, right, to the <laughs> regional change that's really happened in college football. And really, it's to say college sports entirely. The money is in the South. Really, all of this started, rewind to last summer. <laughs> the Our man, the great Brett Kavanaugh, love that guy, by the way. Way to go. Way to go. Love that guy. Always pushing progressive reform, Brett Kavanaugh. Just the way President Trump intended. But he, you know, wrote that, I would argue, pretty scathing. And I would say five years ago, you would have run that on Deadspin and thought, oh, those people are insane. That is out of control, crazy left-wing lunacy. And Kavanaugh basically writes this idea like, your whole business plan is flawed. It is predatory. You have to change it. This isn't going to work. So we see that we're like, oh my gosh, that feels like this massive, massive change that's going to happen. But that's not what happened. What that does is completely gut the NCAA. The NCAA realizes very quickly, oh, we have no power at all anymore. So let's not pretend that we do. Good luck with that, guys. And they basically hand it over to the conferences to figure out. So what happens? The SEC comes in and says, and this is where things really started getting crazy. When they signed Texas and Oklahoma to come to the SEC, that gutted the Big 12. Mm -hmm. It brought college football closer to almost a two-conferences idea, which feels like where this may eventually be going. And it basically concentrated so much money in these certain schools and run by conferences. While Kavanaugh's thing said, you have to change your business plan because it's not fair for you to not pay the athletes, he was talking about college football and college sports in general, but the NCAA was where he was focused as. So the NCAA just suddenly had no more power anymore. But the sport is still the same. NIL did not suddenly be like, oh, wow, athletes are totally getting paid what they deserve now. And everything's coming together. They're getting these sponsorships, and that's good. I'm not against that idea. I think it's a good thing that they're getting it. But the idea that somehow college football became more fair to the players in this, I think, has gotten very belied by this notion. Brian Kelly's making, this is a reported 15 million dollars 15 million dollars i look at 
schools, uh, institutions across the country. I live in a college town. There's a lot of budget cuts happening. There's a lot of money that is not going to schools. There's a whole crisis in colleges and universities right now. But the athletic program is fine. Why is it fine? Because like all sports, more money is going into college football right now. Unlike professional sports, none of that's going to the players. <laughs> none of that's going to the players. <laughs> and there's more money coming in. So therefore, a lot of these budgets have to be balanced. So they have to pour the money into somewhere. So where do they pull it in? Facilities. They pour it into new stadiums, new video boards, new places of recruits, and ultimately coaches. That's why this has happened. It's not like Brian Kelly is suddenly worth $15 million, but they got to spend the money somewhere because they're not spending it on players. And I think that's what you see. Baseball is going through this huge labor fight right now. The NFL and the NBA have had them over the idea of percentage of revenue and how much revenue players get. Despite NIL, in college football, it is still zero. And yet there is still more money going in and it's just being funneled in more and more to the coaches. And it's leading to this sort of insanity to where, yes, Notre Dame, because the private school, it only gets a certain amount of money, but LSU can pay $15 million and be fine and not even sweat yeah. it. If they had to pay an athlete, Brian Kelly would not make that much money. And it speaks <laughs> to this thing we've talked about, right? Right. Professional sports and college sports are different. You watch a promo for an NBA game, it's Giannis against LeBron. In college basketball, it's Coach K against Calipari. In college football, it's Saban against Kirby. All the power is in the hands of these coaches in a way that has always felt imbalanced, but I would argue is even more imbalanced now in the wake of what was supposed to be reform. I agree with you one gazillion percent about the money that's being poured in that must be spent, and this is an arms race to get top talent. But I also believe it is an aspect of pride for some of these multimillionaires and billionaires who are boosters to these universities. Just as we saw the millionaires and billionaires racing to get to space, you know, this summer, <laughs> yeah. and they were kind of jockeying for position about who's going to be first. These universities have boosters who make the same amount of money and have the same kind of ego. But instead of racing to get the space, they're racing to have their schools win championships and be number one. And it's real. Yeah. It is very real. There is a booster for USC. His name is Wayne Hughes Sr. And he reportedly has already given the school north of $400 million. $400 million. Now, he's been doing it quietly. He has been bragging about it. But the LA Times reported, I work for the LA Times, I know they've reported on it. He's given about $400 million to the school. To the school or the athletic department? To the school. Okay, that's to, good. To, to that's the good. school. That's good. But don't get it twisted, Will. Mm-hmm. He wants that school to win national championships. Of course championships. he does. That's why he's there. Right? That's why he's doing it. I know. I know. He wants that school. And he's now in his 80s, right? And he's probably <laughs> sitting around like going, God damn it. <laughs> So-and-so, so-and-so, their school is winning this and yeah. this school is winning that. And USC is embarrassing itself. Oh. So when I looked at some of the incentives and bonuses that Lincoln Riley got, I was like, hell, fuck yeah, he got a $6 million house and a jet. Because <laughs> the boosters are like going, we don't give a fuck what you want. Yeah. Just come here. This is all we, we have. we got you. <laughs> right. right. And we got you. What we want right. is to get back to prominence. What we want is to at least be in the conversation for the playoffs again. What we want is to win national championships again. We're USC. 
We shouldn't be bottom feeders. We shouldn't be satisfied because we beat our crosstown rivals and think that's a successful season. And so you're right. There's an infusion of money, but I also believe there's an infusion of ego here and pride, like school pride. And these boosters are willing to open up their coffers and pay for the top tier talent if they think it's going to get them the championships that they want. Yeah. And this is the one thing they can do above board, right? Because listen, yes. let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, these boosters are also giving lots of money to the players. Like, let's not kid ourselves that they're not doing that. I think that is totally fine, by the way, just to be it. as clear as possible. I think that's totally fine. If they're spending this much money for the guys that bring in the players, imagine mm-hmm. how much money they're giving to the players. <laughs> listen, I live in Athens. Georgia football is a well-funded organization. (laughs) And the idea that Georgia football has suddenly become really good only because they just got this really smart coach and Kirby Smart's a great coach. But like, clearly there were big boosters involved with the Georgia program that said, we're tired of not winning a championship. Mark Rick was a coach here before and he was well-paid, not to say that he was not well-paid or not even part of a larger- And he was successful. And he was also part of the larger, generally corrupt system while still being an awesome guy. It's not like the system was any better then, but like then you could do the, I'm trying to teach these young men and I'm trying to make them into better people. I'm not saying that's vanished from college sports entirely, but the decision here, and I suspect a lot of places was made, yeah, but we want a title. We want a title, and that's what we're here for. And it was not made by a particularly aggressive athletic director or a board of directors that got really excited. It is just like you're saying, it was made by a bunch of really, really wealthy boosters who it almost seems indicative of perhaps a larger issue in the country that a bunch of old, very, very wealthy people can control everything if they really want to. And in the wake of our man, Brett Kavanaugh, my favorite thing about Kavanaugh's uh, big writing that he said, we all know how people love college sports, like going to the NCAA tournament and watching the national championship. And of course, famously all going together to watch the men's lacrosse championships in North Carolina. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, nobody does that but you, Brett. No like one, nobody, no one, no one does that but you. That's not a thing. Exactly. Uh, stop trying to make that happen. Uh, That's but not anyway, a thing. The point is, is that I think that he thought this would spur change in college football. By damaging the NCAA, it would be a way to lead to reform. I would argue it's done the opposite. It's helped players in that NIL now exists and there is some money for players. I would argue there's probably something bad about that, though, because it's given the illusion that the system has somehow become more fair. And the players are getting a larger portion of the pot and they're not, it's going to coaches. And that's how you see things like this. I was in a conversation the other night with a bartender who wanted to be an educator, wanted to be a teacher. And she was telling me how her mom, who was a teacher, told her to find something else to do, that the money in teaching just isn't there. And I said to this young lady, who was making very strong drinks, by the way, shout outs to you. <laughs> she she uh, sounds like a wonderful <laughs> educator. Oh, she, <laughs> she's like, I can't teach kids, then I'll just get this guy here drunk. That's um, how it works. <laughs> I wasn't fighting her. But I said to her, I was like going, well, your mom's right. And I said, because in most of the country, the highest paid state employee is a coach. It's either a basketball or football coach. And she didn't believe me. So I put up one of those USA Today articles, you know, that's always shaming the nation about this part of it. And I just started going state by state by state. And I got to like state 20 and it looked like she was going to be in tears because she she hadn't even noticed that that was the dynamic. And I was like going, yes, education is extremely important. Teaching is the one profession that feeds all other professions, right? 
You don't get to be anything else until you go through a contact with a teacher. Power. But it isn't power that's respected. As far as I'm concerned, you show your respect by how you sign the check. Yeah, I mean. If the check is plenty, then there's plenty of respect. If the check is, you know, yeah, then. And if you find yourself having to work on the weekends at the mall because your education teaching salary doesn't cover your student loans and your living expenses, that tells you where the respect is. And so this nation, especially when it comes to these state universities, public schools, they clearly respect the hell out of these coaches. And now with boosters, to your point, being even more unleashed and emboldened than ever before, and there's this incredible arms race happening, I think what we're seeing is just going to be more and more of the norm. That you're going to start finding boosters coming in saying, damn it, we want to win a national championship too. (laughs) Which coach can we go and snatch? And it no longer will be, we can't get that guy because that guy is at that school. It's just going to be, what's his number? Yeah. What's his number? Everyone has a number. They're giving him a house and a houseboat, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly is getting a house and a houseboat. Is it one of those like Burt Reynolds airboats like uh, from Gator? That would be I don't awesome. Know. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't like, like I knew houseboats existed, but I didn't know that could be a piece of enticing, you know, element that you could present to someone as you're trying to poach them. Wait, the recount didn't give you a boat? Uh, no, I did not get a boat. Oh, neither did I. Hey, Neither did I. Why are it's, you wearing a sailor's cap, though? It is worth noting, to close, maybe to close this out, it's worth noting this weekend is the SEC championship game between Alabama and Georgia. Huge, huge game. I will be there. Massive, massive game. I had to pay more for tickets than I would have liked. And I will tell you that if that would have been a debate between professors at the University of Alabama between and professors at the University of Georgia, I would have paid less. So I, as much as I appreciate your bartender, particularly the heavy drinks that she makes, uh, <laughs> strong, I think that uh, pours. people <laughs> vote with their money and they vote with their wallet and they vote with their feet. Yep. All right, well, let's move on to our next big topic, which is about those unruly fans out there. What is LeBron looking for? Oh, he, he, somebody is, we got a fan that's, that's got a little unruly, and LeBron is pointing it out to the officials. And what they're going to do is they're going to put these, put them out. That was the sound of a recent game in Indiana where LeBron James had two fans ejected from their courtside seats for the abusive comments they directed at him. Besides the LeBron James incident, just recently Mississippi head coach Lane Kiffin had to dodge projectiles thrown at him in a game at Tennessee. And Alabama head coach Nick Saban, Nick Saban, called out the attitude of what he termed self-absorbed fans on a radio show because a caller was mad that the Crimson Tide weren't winning games by big enough margins. It sure does seem like the frequency of these events has increased since the pandemic started, and it's got me wondering, Will, have fans really become more entitled, or are players and coaches just tired of dealing with their bullshit? I feel like there's a couple things going on here. On the fan side, particularly post-pandemic, I feel like I have to remind myself of this every single time I go to the grocery store. <laughs> People are Get not- toilet paper? I've been hoarding. You know, when that shortage happened, that was because of me. I did that. Good um, man, because I'd much rather that than the opposite. So people are not at their best right now. And I try to keep that in mind. We're all going through this. 
We've all had our realities upended. We've all lost perspective on some things and come back to it. I said things on social media in the early days of the pandemic that I would look back now and be like, okay, dial it down. Like, like, like we all, yeah, like <laughs> I've, I swept it all. It's gone. <laughs> so it's worth to keep in mind that fans, I think, are acting up in the way that kind of everyone has acted up a little bit. I think people have been inside their homes for a long time and they got out and people start reveling a little bit more. They, they get fired up. And I think there is a level of entitlement, though I would argue that fan entitlement is has kind of always been there. I just think we, because of the internet, because of message boards, we can see it a little bit more clearly. Basically, Nick Saban is saying, these are college kids. These are not just the people that you root for on Saturdays, which is true, but has always been true. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to bet that the average uh, college football fan can name the players stats a lot more than they can name what they're majoring in or where they're from. The average fan does not care. They should care in an altruistic world. They would understand that these are 19-year-old kids that are playing for free. But if that altruistic world existed, they wouldn't watch college football. <laughs> like They watch college football <laughs> to go nuts, right? The larger thing of this is we are listening to the players more now. And I think this has kind of always gone on when you see instances like you saw with LeBron, uh, Russell Westbrook, I think I had popcorn thrown on him. And I think there were times in the He's past- He's been playing like we, better since then, though. Yes, he has. Basically, what LZ is saying is, fans, if you're unhappy with the player's play, just toss popcorn at him and we'll get inspired. That's what you're saying, right, LZ? I don't know if it's causal. You know, yeah. I'm just saying the popcorn spill and now, you know, he's playing better. There's I'm only one saying. way to find out, right? <laughs> there was a time where I think athletes and coaches and people that were on the field were expected to just kind of take it. That was part of the game, right? Sorry, but that's why you get the big bucks or that's why you get the scholarship or that's why you, you get whatever you get is understanding that, yeah, you're going to get heckled. That's what it is. If you can't handle it, you're in the wrong profession. I do think in an age of player empowerment, in an age of players having more of a voice on things, we are listening more to their, you know what, I'm a human being, and I don't have to listen to this. And I feel like that has been a switch in our perceptions of how we react to players and, and fans having battles. It used to be that when fans heckled Reggie Jackson, it was like, yeah, of course, Reggie's, he thinks he's so great and he makes all this money. Well, you got to heckle him. And now you're like, no, he is a human being right there that is performing for you and entertaining for you, but he's still a human being and you have to treat him as such. And I think there's been a shift in the way we kind of look at that a little bit. I, I, I would agree. And I think that's the byproduct of seeing hundreds of thousands of people die from this virus that came out of nowhere in less than a year. When you're alone, or even if you're a family, but you can't travel around and you're watching the news, or even if you're trying to avoid the news, the impact of this virus, particularly in its early days, forced everyone to just sort of reprioritize life in a lot of ways. I don't know about you, but I've lost friends to it. I've lost family members to it. And it just forced me to sort of ask myself, one, why are you putting things off? Two, are you checking in on people that you care about? And three, my own mental health and, and well-being. You could not distract yourself with going to the bar. You could not distract yourself by going to the movies. You were there with you. And so you had an opportunity, whether you wanted it or not, <laughs> to sort of deal with you. And I think that process also impacted athletes to the point in which they said to themselves, no, I'm not soft because I don't want to be treated this way. I'm human because I want to be treated this way. Booze and cheers, part of the game. Harsh criticism, part of the game, but being dehumanized 
Why has this been accepted? And now that I'm here, now that we're all here and life has stopped and we have to ask ourselves what's really important in life, we're no longer just going to sit back and be dehumanized because we're athletes or be dehumanized because of our contracts or be dehumanized because I struck out today. I'm not going to sit for that. And for the first time in civilization's history, <laughs> the athlete that dare says, treat me like a human is being respected for standing up for herself or himself and asking to be treated like a human as opposed to being ridiculed for that. Because once upon a time, Will, and not that far ago, no. if an athlete says something like, I'm not mentally well right now, they would have been called soft. They would have been called a pussy. They would have been run out. They would have been, you know, talked about for forever and a day. And we know that because we've seen it. We saw what the sports world did to Ricky Williams when he was talking about mental health issues. We were there for real time. So we know what we're capable of. But since the pandemic, we're not there anymore. And I think those fans who are throwing projectiles at Lane Kiffin or saying really awful things about LeBron James's family, they didn't get the memo, but they're getting it now. And, and I do think players having more of a voice that we all can hear that's unfiltered, I think is a factor in this. For crying out loud, if Reggie Jackson would have said, I'm a human being, I don't deserve to be treated this way, Mike Lupica would have gone in the, in the New York Daily News and been like, Reggie Jackson, overpaid, pampered superstar, says that he right. has to be treated this way. I guarantee you Johnny Lunchpail calling into WFAN at 3.30 doesn't think that Reggie Jackson has a right to complain about this, and it would all piled on him. Yep. Generally speaking, if the athletes wanted to be heard, there was some sort of filter. There was some sort of person interpreting their words or taking their words out of context or inserting them into whatever narrative they wanted to put them in, which let's not kid ourselves, for a long time in sports journalism was overpaid athletes playing a kid's yep. game. Why don't they appreciate it? And I think now there's an understanding of the pressure these athletes are under. There's an understanding of how short their careers are. So the idea suddenly like they are so overpaid. Well, maybe if you only play for a three or four years, you're probably not so overpaid considering you have to still go find the job afterward. There's an understanding of what these athletes' lives are like off the field and out of uniform that is different than I think it's been in the past. I don't feel like fan behavior is dramatically worse. I think it's a little worse post-pandemic. Again, in the same way that everyone's acting a little bit worse during the pandemic. Not everyone's at their best, and I try to remember that. They're not like teachers are to kids, right? For a long time, we treat athletes like teachers are to kids. If a kid sees a teacher at a school, you're like, what? Don't you live at the right. school? <laughs> Your name is Dorothy? You're Mrs. Thompson. What are you talking about? We treated athletes that for a really long time. You're on the field, and then when you leave the field, you no longer exist to me, and you are something else, and then you come back. And I think we understand them more as humans now, and I think that's changed it as well. Okay, Will, let's take a quick break. If the new variant Omicron becomes a major problem, will sports shut down again? We'll break it down next. The Long Game with Ellie and Leach. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
All right, LZ, we're back. The world is waiting for answers about Omicron. We know very little other than it was detected in South Africa. It is a highly mutated variant that appears to spread easily and could have some vaccine resistance. But scientists say it will be a few more weeks before there is data to confirm that. That was a CNN report about the emergence in South Africa of Omicron. The dun, very, dun, dun. <laughs> very concerning. It's very scary. The, they gave it the most scary Greek letter. There's no question I about mean, that. Seriously. <laughs> the very concerning new coronavirus variant that seems to be spreading worldwide. It's clear the pandemic, of course, is far from over, with possibly now that in some places maybe it could even get worse. So in light of this unsettling news, I think it's worthwhile to look at how the sports world has responded to the pandemic over the last 20 months as it learned to adapt and come back full throttle in 2021. And LZ, I wonder if it's worth asking, at this point, is there anything Omicron could possibly do (laughs) that would shut down sports again? I think the fact that you and I are joking about the name of this variant shows how terrified right we are. There, right, <laughs> tells you yeah. what the sports world yeah. is going to do. That, that gives thing. you an idea what the last 20 months have been like. <laughs> think about this for a second, right? Like the true timeline of the pandemic shutdown, right? Go back to early March. Before the NBA shut down, tennis actually shut down one of its biggest tournaments of the year, which was Indian Wells. Because someone, not an athlete, but someone within the community contracted the virus and we still weren't sure how it spread and the deadliness of it, of course. And so then that one tournament was stopped, but sports as a whole kept going. It wasn't until an actual athlete contracted coronavirus that things shut down. So I think if you look at it from that perspective, sports has decided that if an athlete contracts coronavirus, then that athlete is going to be quarantined. That athlete won't be allowed to play until they have a negative test. But sports is going to continue. Back when the pandemic first started, Will, a fan could catch coronavirus, but we're going to keep playing. <laughs> it's when the athlete caught it that we stopped. Now we're not stopping for athletes either. So to answer your question, I know Omicron sounds scary, but just based upon the way that sports handle the initial pandemic, that if an athlete contracts Omicron, chances are they're going to tell that athlete, you go sit on the side, you have to be quarantined, you have to be isolated, we're going to keep playing. That's what it feels like to me. It is remarkable to me how much the attitude of sports has changed toward the coronavirus from the beginning. I remember that week when everything went down, when all the shit went down with Tom Hanks and Rudy Gobert and Trump's sniffly, error-filled, weird speech that you watch, you're like, oh, we're really fucked now. Like Right, because you're fucking with Tom Hanks. It was a vague concern in everyone's mind. It really, it wasn't related to that night. You were like, oh, uh, we're fucked. (laughs) We're really, there's no one who's going to help us. Think of that time. The idea of Rudy Gobert testing positive. Remember that Mark Cuban looking at his phone being like, holy shit. And everybody freaking out. And and everybody, and I get it. But I remember, you know, three days beforehand, remember the Ivy League canceled its conference tournament. And I have to tell you, as a big college basketball person, the undeniable view that everyone had was, 
Oh, what a bunch of idiots. What a bunch of ninnies. What are they so right. worried about? Right. Settle down. That was like three days before. Three days before. Like, what are they doing? I remember joking, like, well, it didn't matter because you're the Ivy League and no one's watching you anyway. No one cares. Like, fine. I don't know what you're so scared about. And then, of right. course, four days later, we we're like, oh, my God, they were totally right. We should have listened to the nerds. Sports spent the next year and a half not listening to the nerds. And, like, quite right. specifically. And it is funny to think about that stretch where you know, that time you're talking about. Uh, from the tennis tournament. The first league to come back, I believe, was the National Women's Soccer League, which had that kind of uh, Champions Cup, I think is what it was called, a uh, tournament. It was a pseudo-bubble. Like, there were no fans. There were, like, few people there. They lost a team as they went into the tournament. It wasn't part of the regular season. It was, like, its own right. set-alone tournament. I watched it. I couldn't wait to watch sports. And it was funny to think, even at the time, you thought, are they going to be able to pull this off? Are they going to be able to do this? Are they going to be able to so on? I remember writing in the New York Magazine column at the time, you know, once sports gets going, are we going to have, like, Injured list, hamstring, injured list, COVID-19. And like the, and everyone the was like, that's yes. so weird. And the answer was yes. And right. I think that speaks to like the larger thing. We don't know what Omicron is going to do, but sports is not shutting down again. Like, I just don't think right. there's any question about it. Right. The resilience of sports during this, for better or for worse, I think is going to be something that we talk about forever from this pandemic. I think when you see Tom Rinaldi do a TV piece about it, how heroic the sports leagues were and how much they <laughs> powered through, I think another argument could be made that the idea that we were plowing through a beginning of a college basketball season and an NFL season during the peak of this maybe didn't set the best example for a lot of people and a lot of people died during that time we'll see what historians look back on on how we handled this or how we didn't handle this but sports is not shutting down they have pulled this together in so many ways and it's funny because i feel like one of the reasons they've been able to thrive is because it's become such a television oriented sport it's become mm -hmm. television programming that's so much where the finances come from I think that when Adam Silver and Roger Goodell and Rob Manfred and Gary Bettman and everyone else were, were all putting these things together, I don't think they were thinking, well, we have to have games for the spirit of competition. They were thinking, we need television inventory. We have contracts to fulfill. And I think that is what pushed all this through. And I just don't see any way after kind of what they went through last year, barring Omicron, Omicron being like a combination of polio and COVID-19 and airborne cancer or something. I can't fathom anything that's going to make sports shut down again. I agree with you. Is Falco still around? Because I feel like what they did with Amadeus, they could do with Omicron. Like, Omicron, Omicron. Omicron. If they're not around, Weird Al can probably do it for us. Oh, yeah, definitely Weird Al. <laughs> you know, the thing that I find fascinating about what we learn about ourselves as a species yeah. <laughs> is that sports isn't just resilient, it's the purpose of community. Because when we were isolated and there weren't any live sports or anything like that, it felt as if society was falling to pieces. And as soon as sports started to come together, and then you had the last dance, and then you had the bubble, people started to say return to normal. Even though we still weren't working, right. we didn't know who the president was. We hadn't hugged our family. And we hadn't hugged our family, <laughs> but there's a game on so things are normal again. Yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. They didn't create a theater bubble, right? <laughs> they didn't create a television show bubble. You know, there are other programming that we could have watched on television that could have been bubbleized, right? <laughs> or whatever the heck the word you want to make it into a verb. We didn't rush to do that. We rushed to sports to do that. 
And it's because sports is where we turn to when the World Trade Center was attacked. Sports is where we turn to when a hurricane or a tornado destroys a community. You always see these pieces about a game. You see these pieces about a team coming together. I remember after the hurricane hit Louisiana, seeing all these stories about the high school teams that traveled with very little clothing in order to participate and how good this was for the community. Sports is what we look to to feel human again. And that is separate, and it's important to repeat this, that is separate from us hating the business of sports. But it's about the purpose of sports. And you're right, I don't believe that sports is going to go away because our elected officials and elected officials all over the world understand that if they want to keep society together, then they need to keep sports together. Because that's the one entity that has proven above everything else to hold us together. Remember, in the heart of 1950s racist America, you still had black and white people talking about the Dodgers because of Jackie Robinson. I mean, that's power. And oftentimes, I think we kind of conflate the wins and losses and the money that's attached to them and the coaching carousel with its importance. But be not mistaken, when you go out through the test of time, all the way back to Caesar's day, sports is right there, holding it together. And I think sports is going to survive Omicron. (laughs) And I, I think there's two different things to look at this too. One is the way that sports came back spoke to how there's an old joke in newsrooms that on election night, when all the news reporters get together and they're all like, oh, we have to get our pizza. We're going to be up so late tonight. Right. The election yeah, results yeah. are coming in. We got to be ready. And the people in the sports department are looking at me like, yeah, we do this every single freaking night. Like we do this all the time. <laughs> sports happen. It's what they are. They are constant news. One of the reasons it's so fun to write about sports or to do this show is that things are constantly happening. Like, I remember when I first started doing Deadspin way back in the day, and I, and I remember going like, hmm, am I going to have enough stuff to write about? Should I, like, generate story ideas? They fall from the sky. Things happen constantly. <laughs> it, is a constantly. Ma- it is a constant news generation device. Everywhere, all the time. You can go watch a random high school game between two teams you don't know, playing a sport you don't understand, and there's a story there, and there's things going on, there's people connected. It is something that is constantly happening. I think we've seen even a certain segment of the population that has learned during this, you know what? I'm changing my life. I'm comfortable being at home all the time. I don't need to travel as much. I don't need to go do these things. Personally, the minute I was fully vaccinated, I was hugging everybody in the street. I was ready to get outside. I'll go to any party you invite me to. I'll go to every movie. I'll go to every game. I need to get out. My family is very sick of me. But at a certain level, I know that there are certain people that still, whether it's out of safety or whether it's out of like kind of isolation or just their comfort level, like things should change now. The office should be different. Mm-hmm. The labor management should be different. Sports more than anything else. Like, no, we've got to get back on our schedule. We got to back back right. on our schedule. We got to get back things going. It's one of the reasons the television ratings, I would argue, were not as great during the pandemic as we thought they were going to be, is because the sports were at such weird times. The NBA finals right. were in like October. That's not when you watch the NBA we didn't finals. Know what to do? Yeah, and so I think there is something about. The structure, listen, you've been watching sports forever. I've been watching sports forever. When I see fall, I think 
oh, football's coming and the yep. World Series is going to be here. When I see spring, it's spring training and the NBA finals are coming up. Labor Day will always be the U.S. Open for me. So many of these things are tied up in the calendar and they become constants that I think we rely on sometimes without even realizing. And so I think sports mm -hmm. felt very emboldened, I would argue correctly, even if they probably had to throw some elbows to do it, to get back in a way that really not a lot of other fields, I'd argue, even still have. I just feel that the important thing as we are waiting for more information about what exactly is Omicron and how it impacts society, will there be shutdowns, legitimate shutdowns of industry? Will this continue the inflation? Will this continue the supply chain difficulties that the globe has been having really because of the initial shutdowns? There is a healthy conversation to be had about that. But if there's going to be a conversation about shutting down sports, they better be right. <laughs> I'm being 1 billion percent serious about this because if they fuck this up, Will, I'm not quite sure how the world is going to feel about the medical and science industry going forward. Because if they get this wrong and they take our sports away from us again <laughs> and it ends up being nowhere near as devastating as some of the media coverage may prop it up to be, there's going to be a backlash and there's going to be a turning off of those industries, of that voice, that's going to be harmful for civilization. And I don't think I'm overstating that. We I, I think you already see aspects oh, of it now. No question you're already seeing. Independent of sports, so, I have to tell you, I'm fully vaccinated. I've got my booster. Got my booster too. My children just got, have gotten their second shot. I want everyone to get their shots. I want everyone to be okay. But people need to move on with the, move the lives forward, man. This has been going yeah. on for two years. And I don't yeah. think it's ridiculous for the average person, whether they're a sports fan or walking around to say, wait, you're really telling me not to have Christmas. You're really telling me not to have Thanksgiving. You're really telling me to do that. I think sports has had that attitude earlier than anyone else had had. Remember when the Rangers had that first game where they had full capacity stands? That was like, yep. they're insane. This right. is so reckless. This is so stupid. It was fine. Fine, there was no uptick in cases in Texas during that time. Sports does not appear to have driven any sort of major vibe. Right. And I think it's led, and maybe we should close with this, watching that game, Michigan-Ohio State last weekend. Hail to the victors. Hundreds of thousands of fans yeah. losing their ever-loving minds in, in a yeah. way that is... Like, it's, A, that's why we watch this. Like, that's the joy of this. But it definitely felt like it had an extra oomph of, oh, man, this is what we lost. And there was an extra level of exuberance and joy that not only did Michigan finally take over Ohio State and they have 100,000 people going crazy, but this was also people feeling like they're on the other side of something. And I think that's something right. that sports can represent. I just think if you watch that game, and said, oh my gosh, those people are so close together. There's so the virus is around. Oh, oh, Omicron is coming. I think you're on the wrong side of history. Maybe you're on the right side of history, the wrong side of history, but I do not think America's with you right now. And I definitely do not think the sports world is with you right now. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but people move on. I think sports has been at the forefront of that. Which is why I said it's so important that if they're suggesting that things need to shut down, particularly sports, that they get it right. That they get it right because... If they get this wrong, for better or for worse, society is going to start tuning them out. And that's going to leave us vulnerable for something much worse, I fear. And free South Africa, too. Stop tripping. Travel ban. The fuck? <laughs> All right, LZ. Moving on. Moving on. 
time for This Week in Sports History, where we look at a famous event from the past through the lens of 2021. Jordan, 51 for Michael. I think that's what they were going for, and I think he'll probably come out of the game now. And 100 for Washington. He has more than half their points. That was the sound of Michael Jordan having his greatest game as a Washington Wizard, anyway, when he scored 51 points against Charlotte, the oldest player to break 50 up to that point. Why are we bringing this up? Because 19 years ago this week, on November 28, 2002, the 39-year-old legend announced that he was retiring from basketball for the third and final time. In his two years with the Wizards, the team went 37-45 and 45 each season, that is not a good record, <laughs> and failed to make the playoffs, which is also not good. And the fact is, we never discussed the Washington Wizards part of Jordan's career. There was a whole huge documentary about him where it didn't come up at all. When we have the conversations about, is Michael Jordan the greatest player of all time? It's funny how the Wizards thing never comes up. Elsie, why does that never come up? Because it messes up the narrative, which is exactly why a lot of people, me included, didn't want him to come back. We wanted to remember Michael Jordan at the free throw line after he pushed off Byron Russell. And so we do. (laughs) (laughs) And so we do. Exactly. That was the perfect storybook ending. Michael Jordan holding that follow through, winning a championship, storybook ending. He's the one that messed it up. Yeah. (laughs) Going to the Washington Wizards, being seen in a different jersey. Just even the visual of him in something other than a Chicago Bulls jersey. With that was, actual wizard, with the actual yeah, like the, wizard casting spells oh on the jersey. Gosh. Oh, yuck. Yeah, it was so bad. But when I think about that time, and you're right, the team was awful. But there are two moments from that time that I remember, on-court moments, that I think are good memories. And thus, I'm not too sad that his career ended the way that it did. The first memory is him with two hands pinning Ron Mercer's shot against the backboard. as like a 95-year-old man, or however the hell old he was at that point. Mercer on the run. Oh, what a play. What a defensive play. A two-hand block, steal, game set, match. are trying to foul. Oh, my goodness. What a play. Michael Jordan took it down. One, I had not seen him do that, or I didn't remember him doing that before when he was with Chicago. And then two, he was just so damn old, I didn't know he could still get up like that. (laughs) And I was just like going, damn, this guy is amazing. I think Ron Mercer was drafted fifth overall out of Kentucky, had bounce. Ron Mercer was a decent player. And he just pinned his shot against the backboard with two hands. And I was just like, wow, Michael Jordan. And then the other, and I was very, very blessed to be in the arena when he did this. He's on the baseline. He hits his patented fallaway turnaround jump shot in the face of Sean Marion that would have won the All-Star game his first year back had Kobe not been Kobe and said, I don't give a damn who you are. I'm winning this game. And Kobe goes down, gets fouled, hits two free throws, ties the game, goes in overtime, and then the team loses. But I remember him hitting that shot over Sean Marion because it was classic Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan with four seconds. Fakes, shoots. Oh, oh, he did it again. Oh. He did it again. And I also remember it because the coach of that all-star team 
was his nemesis, Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Elsie, I'd like to congratulate you on being the one person that remembers multiple Michael Jordan Washington Wizard timelines. <laughs> Those uh, are the uh, only two. All I remember is him yelling at poor <laughs> Kwame Brown. It was funny, too, because a couple of things. One, I feel like that Jordan aura went away more quickly than we would have thought. I have to say, when he came back, I thought, holy shit, the Wizards are going to win the NBA Finals. I don't know how, but like when he drafted Kwame Brown, I was like, oh, Kwame Brown must be Shaq. Right. It's Jordan. He knows everything. He knows everything. It really felt like he was going to come back and just, they were going to win it that year. I had friends that were Wizards fans that were like, he picked us. He picked us. They do right. not feel that way anymore. It took years to clean up the mess that he made there. And he did it so kind of unpleasantly. I actually felt this way watching The Last Dance. I enjoyed it. It was fun. I was nostalgic for those times. My favorite NBA player of all time is Dennis. Rodman. There's so many great Dennis Rodman moments in that documentary. So I certainly enjoyed it. But I did not walk away thinking, wow, Michael Jordan, that's a person I should emulate more in my life. That's a person I should try to be like as much as possible. He seems deeply unhappy, obsessed with old slights, forever charging up a hill that he'll never reach the top of. And that works when you're Michael Jordan in your prime. When you're 39-year-old Michael Jordan, by the way, the old man you're talking about is the exact same age that LeBron James is heading into. Right now, Phil obliged to point out, if LeBron James blocked a shot like that, you'd be less surprised. You'd be less surprised surprised. if you saw that. So it's a totally... I'm I'm mad now he's not blocking shots like that. (laughs) So to me, it was a reminder that when Jordan wasn't Jordan, he was actually like, could be destructive. If he wasn't able to make up for it by being Michael Jordan, you saw what happened in the Wizards. It it completely fell apart. But I do find it telling, I think this is a key thing. I feel like we've just kind of collectively decided not to talk about it. It was just so kind of unpleasant and it was just weird and no one wanted to see it in that way that we just kind of pretended it didn't in that way, even though it did. Right. And if that were to happen in today's time, he would be destroyed. Oh, I mean. He would just... The memes. Well, it'd be Michael washed Jordan everywhere. Oh every gosh. time he went out. Every like, single time he went out. There would not have been a crying meme, Jordan, because the washed Jordan would have supplanted it, right? Oh, the reason yeah. why we don't talk about it is because we don't want to mess up our storybook ending. And even though I remember two very, very Michael Jordan moments from that time, you're right. When I think of Jordan, I don't think of the Washington Wizards. I I just don't. When I think of Patrick Ewing, I don't think of the Orlando Magic. I do think of Seattle, though. That he was a he was fun with Seattle. Actually, he, he actually looked good in that uniform too. He actually looked good, but the Orlando Magic thing. No, no. I was like, y'all gonna have to make this court shorter, or he gonna need to stop. Yeah, or, like, or, he's going. or like Shaq on the Suns. <laughs> he was an All Star. No, the, the Celtics. That's the, the Shaq Celtics, I'm thinking of yes. when he was on the Celtics. That's Ooh, who I'm thinking of. Oh man. Especially after he had just played for the Lakers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Shaq and the Celtics. And humanity. <laughs> but again, they were already done. Shaq didn't go to the Celtics, and you're like, oh, okay, well, here right. come the Celtics. Like, it was obviously Shaq just kind of hanging on. Jordan coming in made us feel like, oh, right. here it comes. Here it's happening. And then. But he also kind of couched it like he's going to show these guys how to win. Of course. Of course. That was his whole deal. He was a general manager, right? He's like, fine, I'll do it. I'll do Screw it. That. I'll do it myself. The Thanos, right? I'll do it myself. And he comes in, and then he doesn't do it himself. And then he started tweeting that he needed help. Man. You know what? I'm sorry we did this segment. Let's just pretend that this day in sports history never happened. We are snapping it out of existence. I'm getting the Will Smith men in black thing and uh, blanking it from your minds. Okay, LZ. It's that time to move on to our games of the week. LZ, please tell me your game of the week. 
So my game of the week takes place on Friday, December 3rd. It is the rematch between the Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns. Now we record on Tuesday, Will, so we actually don't know who wins in the first matchup between the two, which is in Arizona tonight. But the rematch is in Golden State on Friday. And regardless of the results of Tuesday, Friday's matchup is still going to be huge because it's not as if one loss is going to knock these two off of this incredible pedestal that they both find themselves on. I cannot wait for that one as well. My game of the week, I hinted at this earlier as I railed about the evils of college football. Know that I cannot wait to go to an evil college football game this weekend. <laughs> I will be at Mercedes-Benz Stadium to watch the SEC championship game between Georgia and Alabama. Famously, Ooh. Georgia obviously is the number one team in the country. They seem to be in the playoff no matter what happens. But Kirby Smart's never beat Alabama. It's been forever since they've beat Alabama. And not only that, Alabama has not only beat Georgia, they have crushed their souls from the SEC championship game a few years ago where Jalen Hurts came in and brought them back for a win. And Justin Fields played one play that was a fake punt that did not work. Uh, right. And then, of course, famously, the 2018 national championship game in which on its second and 26, I believe, Alabama threw a walk-off touchdown in Georgia's dream season. I have friends here in Athens who have lived here their entire lives, and they think this is by far the best Georgia team they've ever seen. Georgia has, for as great of a franchise as they have, have never won a national championship since 1980. They feel like this is the time, but they got to get over that Alabama hump. It will be a lot of crazed and... As I look at the ticket prices, apparently quite wealthy Southern <laughs> down here, uh, all Come watching on, the it's game. It's a big game. It's a big game. I'll have you know, it is a ritual around here to know at the end of December is when all the hotels in downtown Atlanta loosen up their dates for the SEC championship game of the next weekend. You have to book them immediately before anybody else knows. My hotel has been booked for a year. That's how confident people are and excited about this game. It's very, very exciting. It's a big tailgate weekend. We're all going to go. We're all going to have a good time. It'll be a very exciting time. That's clearly my game. Who do you have? Uh, and don't be a homer. Be real with it. Georgia is better. This does not look like a vintage Alabama team. It looks like one of the best Georgia teams. Certainly the best Georgia team that I've seen. I will pick against Alabama when I see Alabama actually lose. When I see the <laughs> when I see the body in the coffin buried, and that is when I will pick against them. Which is to say, that time is not quite yet. Don't tell any of my friends. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to be a homer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, George is better, but I, I don't know if I can do it. And finally, Will, we know there are always teams, executives, players, or officials messing up the sports. So let's dive into this week's screw-up, shall we? What's your blunder of the week? My blunder of the week is Urban Meyer. It's always fun to make fun of Urban Meyer. And this week... Was he in a bar again? Well, it was funny. The great joke this week was, oh, wow, for the second time of year... Urban Myers had a situation fall just in his lap, which is with <laughs> Notre Dame. Urban Meyer, I have to say, is kind of a perfect fit for Notre Dame, but I think he actually would love that job. And he'd probably be very good at it, but he ain't getting that job now. <laughs> not after that situation, not after one bad year in Jacksonville. So the blunder of the week is Urban Meyer and all that's happened the last year of his life to cost him what probably would have been a pretty perfect fit of a job for him. Absolutely. Speaking of perfect, my blunder of the week goes to the Los Angeles Lakers for deciding to let Alex Caruso go. Mm. He was perfect. Perfect for the team, perfect for what they like to do. When they were in game six of the NBA Finals in the bubble and they had an injured player, who did they insert in that starting lineup? Alex Caruso. And they let him go. 
And we're not really sure why they let him go. I don't know if they wanted him to have more playing time elsewhere or they didn't think he fit anymore. But all I know is every single time we talk about how poor our perimeter defense is, I just think he used to be our girl. He used to be our girl. We missed Alice Caruso. That song was definitely not a blunder to any stretch of the imagination. Please do that again (laughs) from now on. And that's our show for the week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe to us on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week for a breakdown of the biggest sports stories of the week. And I may or may not sing at the end. I demand that you sing. (laughs) We're trying to increase the audience, Will, not scare them away. 